Hi everyone. I'm sure your 2024 feels as empty as Richard the Lionheart's war chest or King John's Christmas card list without a new season of This Is History on your podcast feed. But I'm here to tell you that it's well on the way. Expect to see it in late February. In the meantime, there's oodles of brilliant content over on This Is History Plus, where I've been dropping weekly interviews with brilliant historians and authors like Philippa Gregory and Eleanor Parker. And to give you a taste of what's there, I'm releasing last week's episode here. It's a chat with the brilliant Danielle Sibulski, where I find out how to live like a medieval monk in the spirit of improving myself for the new year. I'll be back at the end. Enjoy. First of all, we can all learn from the Middle Ages, but you seem to like going one further and taking self-help from the Middle Ages. You've written a book about how to survive the zombie apocalypse, medieval style. Before we get into our New Year's resolutions, how well would a medieval peasant do against zombies? Or would King John have lasted very long? <laughs> I think King John would have lasted pretty long, yeah, because he's used to hiding behind walls. He's always trying to get away from people who are trying to get him, so I think he's had a lot of practice at that. <laughs> okay, well, hopefully that uh, the zombie apocalypse is not a tribulation 2024 has in store for us. So let's talk about your latest book, How to Live Like a Medieval Monk. Look, we come across monks a lot in, in the sources for the Plantagenet period, which we've been talking about in our main episodes, um, often as chroniclers. Uh, we maybe don't spend as much time thinking about the reality of their lives as we should. Why did you think monks were such a good group of people to learn from? Well, I think they're a good group of people to learn from because they are really committed to their mission in life. And I think that when we look at self-help, especially these days, people are really focused on goals. They want to make themselves better. And when, you, when you're looking at people who have an ultimate goal, it's going to be medieval monks because they are spending their entire lives focused on one goal, which is to get to heaven. So everything in their lives is structured towards that goal from what they do to what they eat, to what they listen to, to who they associate with. So, I mean, if, if we're looking at goal setting, these are the guys to look at. Let's set some context for everyone listening to this podcast episode. Um, where do monks come from? And I don't mean, you know, which village do they come from or how do they get to the monastery? I mean, where does the idea of the monk come from? How far back does it date? It goes back very far. So in the early days of our new era, the the common era that we're talking about, so late antiquity, you have what are called the Desert Fathers. So these are people who went out into the desert, lived as hermits, and tried to live as difficult a life as they could for their the sake of their spirituality. And people realize that it's actually really hard to live by yourself and meet all your monastic goals, all of those goals that you have for spirituality. Because living by yourself, you don't have anyone to be accountable to if you want to cheat on some of your good resolutions. I think we can all relate to that. So when it came to people who wanted to make themselves better, live better, live in a more spiritual manner, they found sometimes that it was easier to do that with other people. So monks are basically people who want to be hermits together. <laughs> they want to live away from society. They want to live in a way that is focused just on their spirituality, just on praying and doing good works and things like that. And it's much easier to do that if you have an accountability partner. And that's basically where the idea of monasticism came from. Why is it deemed to be uh, 
an easier or a better way to get closer to God, to um, uh, to practice your religion, um, to practice your faith? Why is it deemed to be easier if you're living a life of solitude and hardship? What's the thinking there? The thinking is that a lot of the things that give people pleasure are sinful. <laughs> if you name a lot of the seven deadly sins, you'll realize that they are um, fun things. And so if you want to do these fun things, then you need to... Um, it's not going to lead to the places that you want, meaning heaven. So you're going to want to live away from people that it's going to keep away the temptations of lust, gluttony, and pride and all of those things. It's much easier to do that when you're away from society. And we see, don't we, early in the early in the history of Christianity, and, and let's not forget that Christianity and uh, like most of the like all of the Abrahamic religions is essentially a desert faith. It's something that comes out of of, of really a, a tough and hostile environment. We see all sorts of strange and interesting ways of people practicing forms of monasticism, be it on their own or in communities, don't we? I'm thinking of um, aren't, there, aren't there guys that like hang out standing on a pillar for sort of three years? Yes. Yeah. Stylites? Have I made yeah. that up? <laughs> I'm on the spot, so I'm not going to try and pronounce it. <laughs> I don't think I could do that. I'm just going to go out there and say that I reckon I could do not even as long as David Blaine would have done standing on a pillar. Anyway, put, put all that aside. <laughs> We've got this idea that you can get closer to God uh, by either living in solitude, hermit style, or living uh, monk style. Does this have to be among people of your own uh, of your own gender, of your own sex, or can it be uh, can it be mixed? Does that change at all during the Middle Ages? That's a really good question. And usually it can't be mixed because people are thought to have such little resistance to temptation that you are not really going to be able to even look at a member of the uh, quote-unquote opposite sex without feeling tempted. So there's a lot of rules for monks that say, don't even make eye contact, don't even look at a member of the opposite sex because you are going to become tempted. So usually you're in a group that is all the same gender. And interestingly, though, they do have some monastic houses that have both, but they are separated from each other. So you have abbeys like Fontevraud that have... They have women on one side, they have men on the other side, and they're not really supposed to mix. The only real exception to this is that if the person in charge is an abbess, and sometimes they were abbesses, then they would have to be speaking with the men in order to conduct business. The other exception being that women could never become priests. So in order to perform any of the sacraments, you had to have a priest. So the women would be in contact with a priest, but otherwise you would have people totally separated, even if they were in the same monastic complex. Well, Fontevraud, which you've just mentioned, is of course a great example because it's a it's a Plantagenet foundation, isn't it? It's it's a place that's very very dear to the hearts of Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine. It's where Eleanor and Henry are buried. It's where Richard the Lionheart is buried. It's a a real sort of Plantagenet mausoleum. And actually, if you go there today, it's been substantially rebuilt since it was ruined during the French Revolution and and thereafter. It's it's a it's a it is the sort of spiritual heartland of the early Plantagenets. Why was there such a connection between royals in the Middle Ages and monastic communities. Well, what is it that they just feel compelled to go around founding monasteries here, there and everywhere? Well, monasteries are very helpful if you happen to be a particularly sinful royal because you can get a lot of credit in heaven by founding a monastery. So there is that. But there is also the connection between 
spirituality and rulership, they are never really separate. So when you have a ruler in the Middle Ages, they are only a ruler because they have been endorsed by God. You have to be anointed to actually be able to rule without anyone questioning your authority. So there is always a connection between the two of them. And so you have a lot of royals that end up in monasteries or abbeys or convents. They are the people who might end up ruling them as well because they have education and they have connections. So they are really, really closely intertwined for familial reasons, for political reasons, and also for spiritual reasons. We talked about getting credit in heaven, and I, I just want to uh, unpack that a little bit in, in two directions. First of all, um, is becoming a monk or a nun or you know any, any of these um, professed religious living according to a rule, um, is this supposed to be a better way to get to heaven? And secondly, could you just explain for the listeners what the relationship is between somebody who founds a monastery and like what that's going to buy them in terms of like how many how many points are getting loaded on your your credit your heaven credit card when you get there? <laughs> well, I don't know exactly how many points you would get on your credit card. I think it would have a lot to do with how big the monastery is that you are founding and how much you give to them. If you give them a lot of relics, if you give them a lot of money, if you ask them to do a lot of praying for you. I think if we come back to King John for a second, he didn't have a lot of credit with, uh, I think it was St. Albans. He visited there and he basically stayed there for free and borrowed one of their relics and didn't give it back, if I'm remembering correctly. So his credit card is has nothing on it. He's way into debt. But if you're a monk or if you're a nun, it is thought to be one of the best ways to get into heaven, one of the best ways to build up your spiritual credibility, because it is extremely hard. When you are a monk or a nun, you've given up your autonomy. You're not allowed to make decisions for yourself. You've definitely given up your ability to have any sort of romantic relationship with someone else, and you are always uncomfortable. So you're getting up in the middle of the night to pray. You're eating what you're told to eat. It may not be the thing that you want. It may be fish for 40 days at Lent. And then you're not actually able to decide what you're going to do with your day. You're going to be told to pray at certain times during the day. You're going to be given work to do. You're going to be given even the things that you read. So none of this is something that you are necessarily choosing. And if you listen to this as a list of things that are required of you as a monk or a nun, you realize it's a very hard life to live. And so doing things that are hard will get you a lot of spiritual credit, especially if the things that you're doing that are hard are giving you just one focus, which is on praising God, which is on serving God, which is on worshiping God. Now, your book's called How to Live Like a Medieval Monk. I wonder if you could just say how you think that that, that life, which, as you're describing it, um, it seems arduous at best and unappealing at worst, um, to me at any rate, uh, yep. my sinful self. Um, I wonder if you could just uh, explain what we can draw on that particular aspect, the hardship, uh, the, the lack of free choice that, that would be helpful to us as we contemplate a year ahead and we're trying to sort of mend our ways. Right. Well, this is why the book is called How to Live Like a Monk and not How to Live as a Monk, because I would never think that I would never want to be a monk myself. I would never suggest anyone should do this unless they have a, a serious calling that they've spent a lot of time thinking about before they join a monastery. But how to live like a monk is about scaling back and really keeping the things in your life that are important, building your life around the things that are important to you. So when I talk about things about how to live like a monk, I mean, scaling back maybe on your possessions, scaling back on the 
types of information that you're getting in. So in a monastery, they're enclosed, they're away from everybody. So they're not getting, or they're not supposed to be getting, we know that they did, getting gossip from the community or thinking about things that are outside of the walls of the community. So when I'm talking about living like a monk, I mean, scaling back in your possessions, also those news outlets that you're taking in, like if you're spending too much time on what was formerly known as Twitter, taking in bad information or taking in negative information, it's going to keep you from those things that are important to you. It's going to suck away your time, for example. So there are lots of ways to live like a monk, but I would not suggest living as a monk unless you really have a calling. And you and me are not those people. Well, I would normally say speak for yourself, but I've already admitted it. So um, uh, so yeah, speak speak for us both. Why don't you? Um, living like a monk. There are lots of different ways to live like a monk. Um, I mean, that's literally true in the Middle Ages, isn't it? Because there's not just one generic type that is monk. Right. Um, there are rules. And, and these rules, these orders for the day, these these ways of, of living your life are, are firmly and specifically laid down. Mm-hmm. Could you just explain for the listeners what that means? Who are the the authors of these rules? Uh, how many there are? Are there any new ones that come along during the Plantagenet period? That sort of thing. Well, there are different ways to do it, as you're saying. A lot of them are based on the rule of St. Benedict. So St. Benedict being a person who founded two monastic houses, I think. The first one, he got poisoned by the people because he was being a bit too strict. So he left and created another one. But most of them are based on the rule of St. Benedict. So his ideas on how you should run a monastery, and this covers everything, or live in a monastery, this covers everything from what to eat, to when to sleep, to what your assignments should be, to who should be let in, how you dress, all the things that you are able to possess, which is very few things. That, But you're right, there are other ways to be a monk. So there are Benedictines, which are probably the most popular type of monk, but there are other, other ones as well. You might have heard, or the listeners might have heard of Cistercians, who wear a different colored robe. They wear light colored robes. And they thought that the Benedictines were living too easy a life, that they were not really committed to their rule. So the Cistercians live a life that is even more difficult than a lot of the Benedictines are living as well. Then you have the Cluniacs who were accused of singing too much, so they didn't do enough work. The Cistercians were really into making sure that they did their own farming, for example, and the Cluniacs were accused of singing too much. So you have different ways of doing it, different flavors of doing it. And of course, it's going to be a little bit different depending on the abbot that you have, because if they're in charge of the house, then they're going to really influence it just by force of their personality and experience and things like that. So there are different ways of doing it. And I really also should establish the fact that monks are not friars. So if you've heard of St. Francis, Franciscans, or you've heard of St. Dominic and Dominicans, those are friars. So even though they might live an enclosed life, they don't have to live an enclosed life. Franciscans and Dominicans, part of their mission is to go out and preach. Franciscans especially are preaching and living impoverished lives, so they're begging for their food. Dominicans are preaching and making sure that everybody is orthodox. So when it comes to people who are really worried about hair those are Dominicans, and those are friars. Monks are Benedictines, Cistercians, and Cluniacs. That's really fascinating, and uh, and what what you've given us there is a, is a super succinct and very cogent history of the development of monasticism. We start with the Benedictines, St. Benedict of Nicaea, 5th, 6th century, 
and uh, move into then the Cluniacs, the Cistercians. There's, there seems to be this, and then the Friars, this reaction, this sort of cycle of reaction within monasticism, isn't there, where you have uh, somebody like St. Benedict, for example, uh, will come along and write a rule for how people should live their lives and it will seem extremely severe and everyone will get terribly cross and try to poison St. Benedict or whatever for being mm -hmm. too much of a taskmaster. Mm -hmm. And then over time, these orders will start to accrue wealth because they get a lot of donations from from royals they will start to accrue status they'll start to have quite nice things and then somebody will say hang on this lot they're taking it too easy and then you know if it's the case with the cistercians they'll say we have to live on much worse land and do much harder labor and do you see this in monasticism this constant um move of there's always someone who's a bit more hardcore than you yeah absolutely and you see this coming up in different places, like you have bishops that will go around and check in on the houses and see how they're doing. And then you'll have reports from the bishops saying that in this one particular house, only the person who's in charge of the money for the house should be taking loans, for example. But they find all these wax seals that are used for the brothers to take out their own personal loans in the town. So there's problems like that. One nun, I think, was hoarding a monkey. Because they Sorry, wanted I think you to just have said a pet. there was a nun hoarding a monkey. Yes, yeah. And so you're not supposed to have <laughs> pets. Ross from Friends. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like sneaking it in under her habit, I guess. But yeah, so they're breaking rules all the time. So you always have people that are going to come in and say, you know, we need to do this more strictly. And I think this is something that you see among the friars as well. There's always people who are like, St. Francis said we're supposed to be impoverished, but because everyone is giving us donations, now we're living super well. This is not what we're supposed to be doing so that yeah there's always reform because it's so hard to live by the strict strict rules of saint benedict or anyone else who's coming up with a rule for monasticism that people are going to break it constantly and we still have a very uh, common stereotype of a monk or a friar looking very very rotund right you never see friar tuck for example in a very skinny robe He's always looking pretty round. And these are stereotypes that go all the way back to the Middle Ages about people having rules and not following them at all. OK, so put aside the sinful monks and nuns and, you know, the ones who are sort of running around with a monkey up their skirts. Um, <laughs> give us a flavour of what a typical day for a medieval monk might possibly have looked like. Well, you're getting up at a very uncomfortable hour. and But in some places, like in Kirkstall Abbey in England, you have the monk's dormitory right above where they're going to be coming down to pray, so right above the chapel, so that they can just take something down called the night stairs, just roll out of bed and start praying because you're doing this uncomfortably early. Then you would have a morning meeting where you'd be talking about what everyone's jobs were for the day. You'd be outing each other's sins. If people were not coming forward, maybe you'd out them for their own spiritual benefit. It depends on what your relationship was with the other brothers in the monastery. Um, and then you would be doing work and then you would be praying and then you'd be doing work and you'd be praying. And most of the time, this is going to be done in silence. Ideally, it's going to be done in silence. You could sometimes speak with your other brothers and it would be at certain times of the day and you were supposed to be speaking about spiritual matters. But usually it's going to be very quiet in the monastic section of the monastic complex. And I say this because in a lot of monastic complexes, in order for them to run so that you have 
monks that have time to pray. You have other people called lay brothers and lay sisters that are doing a lot of the work to sustain the monastery. So outside of the actual places where the monks are working, it might be a little bit noisy, but where they are working and praying, it's going to be quiet a lot of the time and it's going to be strict. So if you're doing manual labor, you might take a break from that and do some reading and then you'd be back to praying. And then they go to bed around sunset and they have to get up in the night to pray again. So you have one meal during the day, during the winter, you have two meals during the day, during the summer, the rest of the time you're working, praying, reading, and mostly quietly. So it is a very difficult life. It's not one that I would want for sure, except for the reading part, maybe. Well, I was going to say that actually it doesn't sound that dissimilar from my own life, except for the praying <laughs> bit. And I suppose that's one of the essential elements of being a monk. And yep. you mentioned that silence is quite important for uh, for monks, for monasticism. Mm-hmm. How do they communicate? I mean, let's say you're, you're eating your one meal a day and you think, I mean, this this could do with a little bit of salt, but the salt's down the other end of the table and uh, and, and Brother Mark's giving the reading from the Bible. How, how, how do you get the salt down there when you're not allowed to talk? That's a really good question. And they actually did have a sign language that was written down. And it's hard to really figure out what the sign language looks like when it's just written down. But I think the one for salt is you hold three fingers and you shake them. So it was probably looking like you're miming a salt shaker to do that. But they did have a couple of signs, hand signs that they'd be using during dinner, especially because as you say, it's quiet during dinner, except for a reading that's done by another brother. And it's a reading from the Bible or from one of the church fathers, something that is spiritually edifying. But yeah, you'd be using sign language at the table. I've got a couple of uh, of hand signs I use, but normally when I'm driving. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they were allowed to use those ones, but I bet it was tempting a lot of the time. Yeah, well, you know, it depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> some of these monks get quite fat. Look, the majority of monks don't go in it for the fame and, and, and the glory, quite the opposite. Um, but mm-hmm. there are one or two monks as well as friars who become quite, and, and nuns, for goodness sake, who become quite famous in the Middle Ages. Have you got a, a, any favourites? I think that one of the interesting ones, and I I might be misremembering this one, is Caesarius of Heisterbach, who wrote the dialogue on miracles. And this is a really great story. That's such a hipster choice. (laughs) So niche. I thought you were going to give me Bernard of Clairvaux. Go on, <laughs> no, tell me about it. No, come on, come on. It's because he has, he's so gossipy. Dan, have you not read him? He's so gossipy. He's like, I heard at this other monastery that this brother was doing this thing. So it's really good. Oh, I was thinking of Caesarius because he sneaks his name in. He's not supposed to take credit for what he's doing, but he sneaks his name in. It's one of these things where if you look at the first letter of each of these verses, it puts his name in there. So when you're talking about people taking credit for for the stuff that they're doing, Caesarius comes to mind immediately because he knows he's not supposed to and he still sneaks it in so that we can check it out. But yeah, Bernard of Clairvaux, he doesn't mind having people know who he is. And there's a lot of people who are writing letters like this who are signing them with their own names. But the majority of people are anonymous, like you say. They don't really want to take a lot of credit for what they're doing. But yeah, Caesarius sneaks it in, which is why I picked him. Well, very good choice. Um, have you got any sort of real killer tips for uh, for anyone who's decided, who's listened to us for the last half an hour and decided, yep, it's the life of the monk for me, or it's it's a life like a monk for me? What what what's what would be your 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 best takeaway advice from your studies of monasticism? 
Well, speaking of hipsters, right, one of the things that was the goal of the book is not just to tell people about how monks lived. Actually, there's a very small part of the book. The rest of the book is to tell you about the ways in which they were shaping their lives intentionally. And I, what I do in the book is I bring it back to what we know today about what makes people have a better life. So what makes people physically well, mentally well, emotionally well. So this is really a book that brings together history and actually psychology. And so if I'm doing that, the, the best tip that I can give people, if they want to live a better life, that is also a life that is in touch with history, that's in touch with monks, it is to meditate. So it's it's important to kind of pull these things apart because monks are praying and they're meditating. And these are often thought of as two different things when you're talking to people who meditate today, for example. People often will say praying is asking for something, asking for forgiveness, asking for something from God, for example. And meditation, people often think of it as listening or just focusing on one thing. And what's interesting about this is if you look at monasticism and if you look at St. Benedict, for example, he's really focused on sins, but there are other people like Caesarius who will say, just focus. If you can't focus on your sins or it's too hard or you're having a bad day, just focus on one thing that's good. For example, the grace of Mary or the compassion of Jesus. So focusing on one thing is something that monks did, and it's something we can do today. It doesn't have to be on a spiritual thing. But what's really interesting about meditation, when you look at the science behind it, is you only have to do it for like three minutes a day, and it will make you more mentally healthy for years to come. So say you have a three minute a day habit for a month, and you never meditate again, your brain is actually in better shape than it would have been before you started. And to me, this is fascinating, because it's something that's built into the monastic life. And it's something that modern science has proved is actually really healthy for us. So that's the kind of thing that you'll find in this book, bringing together science and what we know about history and monasticism. Well, that's actually amazing. And do you know what? Very recently, I've started meditating in the morning um, thanks to my Peloton meditating classes. Uh, now I do sound like a hipster, uh, so I'm going to call it a day there. <laughs> There's more from Danielle already out on This Is History Plus, where we speak about medieval manners, along with hours of other content and all episodes ad-free. So if you like what you've heard... Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial and start listening today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. See you in February.